This is Mission.org. This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. In order to build anything these days, you need to be in the science, right? You need to have a funnel, you have to implement it, you have to measure, you have to optimize the conversion. Otherwise, you don't even play in product. That's how you get that funnel vision. And so the question is, how do I then think outside the funnel? How do I almost pretend there is no funnel? Funnel vision, a term coined by today's guest, SC Mowadi. She is an author, venture capitalist, and former product designer at Facebook and at Nokia. And she refers to the rigorous demands of creating products in the modern tech world, while also considering beauty and design. On this episode, SC outlines everything about product excellence, from the definition of it, to the design of it, to becoming a great chief product officer and as a leader. Enjoy this episode. SC, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Albert. Hey, listen, we're pumped to have you. And I want to start right out the gate with products that count. Of course, you're part of Mighty Capital as well, but products that count for those that are listening who are not familiar with this community. This is one of the most influential product acceleration platforms. How many product managers are in this community? Yes, more than 300,000. In fact, close to 400,000. And that's about 20% of all product managers. All right. That is an insane number. I don't understand how you built it. I didn't realize that many people were even in that business, that line of business. But let's start there. Products that count. What is it about this group that you think that attracted this many people? And of course, we got to dive into the role of the chief product officer and the ascension of the importance of that category. But let's start with products account. How did that come about? Tell us a little bit about it. Get our audience a little idea of what this is. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I, you know, I grew up as an engineer, then I studied business and then spent a dozen years building products myself. And after building products for a number of companies, mostly in Silicon Valley, like Facebook and Siebel Systems, Electronic Arts, I was invited to write a book on what makes a great product. So I'm not going to talk about this book. That's sort of another story. But this book is actually what started Products That Count, because I realized that there was no place for myself, my peers at the time to share best practices, really talk shop. And so I started really uh, not in my garage, right? In my, in my dining room, I started a dinner series with other product people. And then it became popular. So we needed a bigger venue. We started meeting every month. Uh, some people started to move to New York. They said, there's a local community of product folks there. I'm going to start a chapter. Other people moved to like Chicago. They said, community is not big enough. So, hey, I'm going to start a podcast. And that's sort of how the network grew. And then, you know, it's not a linear growth, but one at a time, now we got to over 300,000. Yeah, it's a bananas number. Like I said, when the intro, I can't really, if you, would, if you had asked me to guess how many people were in this category of work, I would have guessed less. I don't know why, but I figured that each company only had maybe a handful of people in product uh, because most people, you know, engineers often say, hey, the product people need to engineering. Then there's always that like little budding of heads. But tell us about the rise of product. Why has this role become so important? I know that we all 
understand like the, you know most software product they're product driven companies it's all about getting users to accept the products it's not quite you know it is something that is emerged very very quickly because it used to be like there would be a director of ux maybe a back-end engineer they kind of came together and create product there wasn't like a chief product officer when i was like when i was building software in 2010 that wasn't a title that you know or it wasn't yet yes tell us about how this role has emerged and what like the market demand has been that has forced this role to take such prominence yes yes absolutely so first you know i want to go back to that time when you and i were building and and share this i have this image in my head right you see two people one's an engineer the other one's the product manager yeah and the question is are you guys friends product manager's like oh yes engineer's like not at all <laughs> and that's, kind of, that's the you know how we grew up building products right because um engineers want to build their own thing they have their architecture and product people have the business hat and so on so that was mostly sort of a story of like building product in tech industry in Silicon Valley. And what has happened over the last few years, and it's really been accelerated by the pandemic in, in big ways, is that you know, technology like software is eating the world. So a lot of different industries are now needing product management. And you know, what they mean by that is not, I need product management because it doesn't mean anything. They mean, I need to become more tech enabled, I need to go through a digital transformation. I need to become agile. I need to become mobile. These are all ways to say technology is going to accelerate my business. And now post-COVID, what they're saying is, if I'm not a technology company, I'm going to die, right? So that's where the idea of product management, digital product management is really becoming mainstream. And that's the rise of product as a, as a new function. So that's like until a couple of years ago. And what happened at that stage is, is COVID hits everyone. And now it's not just like, I need to become a technology company. It's that is like technology is the only way that I can interact with my customers. And so now I am a technology company, right? IT organization and, and IT is not ready for it. But what it means then is the business starts to pay attention to this and say, all right, we need to have a function that's going to take all the needs of the business and enable technology to you know, accelerate uh, those needs. That's, that's product. Um, that function initially is a bunch of people who want to do the right thing, right? Product managers, like if you went you know, back two, three years ago and listened to some of the conversations in our networks, like how do we influence engineering? How do we gather requirements and, and really like help prioritize while keeping everybody happy? So it's more like an influencing project management role, except that at some point, these folks are like, wait a minute, I'm now driving a ton of business value in the organization. I'm a strategic function. I'm driving revenue with some of the things like product-led growth. I'm reducing costs with like low code and no code. I'm improving productivity. I want budgets, I want teams, I want responsibilities. And that's where you see the emergence of, you know, the role of the chief product officer. So that's kind of a, a bit of a long answer, but it kind of went, you know, one step at a time. Yeah, we you know we've had Todd Olson, the CEO of Pendo on the show before. And he was talking about the rise of product. It just happens to be in my backyard here in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, when he was on the show, and I'm certainly you, you've seen this, there's been like, you, you already hit the nail on the head, which is as 
interpersonal relationships diminished, like physical contact diminished, right? So salespeople weren't meeting anymore. Uh, communication was happening mostly online. It become more, more and more important for the product itself to like carry users through uh, and use the product. Give us an idea in your perspective. What what is the primary function where all these skills starting to mix? Like, is it more of a UX person is the best type of product person? Is it more of a business person is the best type of product person? Is it an engineer? I know you want to say all three, but give us an idea of what the demands are now, because when you're in charge of product, it's, you know, if from the, if we were wearing our old hats, right? The engineers, why did the product people and the engineers butt heads? Because the product people would say, I need this to solve a problem. The engineers like, that's hard to build, you know, or that's not a good idea to build that. And there was the, that butting of heads. But now this idea that's hard to make is thrown out. Like no one, no business owner will accept that as the answer anymore. If it's hard to build, it doesn't matter. If it makes the product better, it has to get done. Give us an idea of like skill sets, shifts. What is happening that in your opinion that makes, you know, makes a good modern product officer? Yep, yep, yep. So I think there's a lot of things to unpack in your in your question. Like the first thing is, hey, what makes a great product, right? Like as a business owner, my people are are the key are the key to to my success. But if I don't have a competitive product, I don't exist in this marketplace. And so that's the first question: what makes a great product? Then the second question you ask me is, what makes a great product manager? It's like it's somebody who does it all, but <laughs> not everybody's a unicorn. So what does that mean to be a great product manager? And then you asked me another question, which is, what does it mean to be a great chief product officer or a great product leader? So what makes a great product? That's the the key. It's like, by the way, that's the book I wrote. That's why I was banging my head. Like, I'm not going to come up with the answer on my own. I need like 300,000 people to give me the answer. <laughs> We're still looking for that answer, just, just so you know, because now it's like, what makes a great product in this industry and in you know, that stage of development and so on and so forth. But at the yeah, you know, in the essence, like in Silicon Valley, where where product management was born, we talk about this idea of product market fit, and that's sort of like I I hate that notion. I'm going to just put it out there, and then I'll explain why. Why? Because this is this sort of mythical idea of you know I'm on the yellow brick road, da 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 da, da trying to build a great product, and as soon as I see a great product, right, like I have found product market fit, like a, an audience that wants to buy my product. I'm I'm golden. Now I'm just going to be growing. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. If you have a product live in the market, first of all, you know that there's no such thing as product market fit. You find it, you try to grow, you make some customers unhappy, you kind of try to make them happy again, you make the other half of your customers unhappy. <laughs> there's no such thing as product market fit. There's like 50 shades of product market fit. So if you cannot have that sort of line in the sand of, oh, I reached product market fit, then what you have is, you know, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to drive revenue for my company. <laughs> and so you create what I call the, the product equation. And the product equation is, you know, revenue is volume times price. That's just econ 101. Volume is a combination of, you know, number of customers times number of transactions per customer and prices, price per transaction. So if you are able as a product manager to articulate, this is my product equation. I drive revenue because that's how I get more customers. You have an acquisition strategy. That's how I get them to come back more often. You have an engagement strategy and that's how I make money. You have a a business model, you have a monetization strategy. If you articulate your product equation this way, you can build an amazing product. 
Most product managers don't do that because they're pulled between sales and engineering. Hmm. But that's sort of the great aligner. Like everyone, we're trying to build revenue. You can, you know, not every product is that simple. Uh, some products are meant to reduce costs, not drive revenue. So we can go into a lot more detail. That's a whole different topic. But in essence, that's how you think about a great product from a business perspective. But in my book, I talk about this. I say, well, that's great, but that will actually make you a great project manager. If you want to build a great product, you have to think about like, what am I here to do, right? A product is a technology, right? Like technology is like an extension of ourselves. We carry our phones, our earbuds and everything. So a great product is what makes us a great person. So you look at mind, body, and spirit. Like, hmm. yeah, I'll start in the reverse order. Like the, the body rule, we all want to look, look good. We want our products to also be beautiful. That's the UX part, but it's a lot more than this. It's efficiency and, and simplicity. Then the spirit rule, we all want to have meaningful lives. And we expect that our product will also be personalized. And what comes with personalization is also privacy. And then the mind rule, we all want to learn. We all want to grow. We expect that products will also constantly evolve. So if you can combine a business equation, like a product equation, like I just described, with a product formula, like the mind, body, spirit, then you get a really great product. That's your first question. So then what does it take to, to do those things? Because that's one of those things that I think is easy to say, but obviously hard to execute, right? You know what I mean? Like, that's the equivalent of someone saying, like, what makes a great movie? Well, great characters. Okay, well, that doesn't <laughs> like how do I write a great character? So I agree that those things are true. Then what skill? Because then that's like there's obviously very difficult to pinpoint like who would be the best suited person to make your equation come to life. Yes. And so what skills are now the most coveted in product? Is it is it UX? Is it business? Is it engineering? Is it, you know, is it a combination? <laughs> Give us an idea. Yes. So that's another great question. So the traditional product management, you look at like five key competencies for product. You say, hey, you have to conceive, design, build, iterate, and then you communicate all the way through the cycle. That's the traditional product management life cycle. And so for the past few years, we formed a, an advisory board. We selected a handful of folks from the network and said, hey, for each of those stages, you pick one, each of you, tell us what are the superpowers, the three or four superpowers that you think are fundamental to being a great product manager. So the thing is, every year, these folks, they came back with different superpowers because the <laughs> function <laughs> evolves so quickly that they were like, hey, wait a minute, this year, it's all about, you know, for example, are you able to you, you said you talked to Todd at Tendo. Are you able to really track what's going on in your product, right? So that was really fundamental. But a year later, you come back and that's table stakes, yeah. right? So it's like, hey, now metrics are, are tactical. You want to look at KPIs, like what's strategic and so on. And last year with COVID, so we, we created a whole um, you know, campaign with our, our audience around that. And this year, what, what people said in our advisory board is, forget that life cycle. Product is no longer just about the life cycle of building products. It's about building the products, then, you know, being part of a multi-product strategy, creating matrix, internationalizing the product, hmm. relating the, those products to, to strategic KPIs. And by the way, 
also relating that to, you know, what makes us human, like the meaning of life and stuff like that, because with COVID, everybody's like so aware of this. So they just put that product life cycle and these superpowers on steroids. So if you're asking me, what are the competencies? My answer will be, it evolves every year. And now, you know, next year, we're looking at doing that by industry, because now there's a certain way you're a product manager in fintech and a certain way you're a product manager in life sciences and, and so on and so forth. But another key component of that is I can't do it all on my own, right? Because I'm not a unicorn. So I'm going to leverage a bunch of tools and services to help me bridge the gaps in all of these different competencies. And so we've seen an explosion of tools. Pendo was one of the pioneers. We're investors in Amplitude and DigitalOcean and Gaemon, who are pioneers alongside Pendo. But now there are 3,000 tools yeah. in that product stack. And they all fit, you know, some gap in like the different superpowers that product managers have. And to give you a sense, uh, because we look at a parallel between product and marketing a lot, when you think about the tools that are supporting the marketing function, they were about 3,000, five, six years ago. And today they are about 10,000. Yeah. So great product manager has these superpowers but it also is someone who is constantly checking for new tools to get better at their jobs. That's a competitive advantage for product managers right now. So then that takes us right to the, the final question and my blended question, which is, so we know that the, the, the product, the role, what makes a great product? It sounds like a bit of a multi-combination of things. Uh, this this re, you know, user goal, revenue goals, treated it like you mentioned the mind. You mentioned like what makes a good product manager sounds like it's an ever evolving thing, right? So one year, it might be one skill. The next year, it sounds like you'll need another. It sounds like the toolkits in this industry are gonna to continue to get better. It's gonna allow you to measure things that maybe you weren't able to measure before, learn things about users that you maybe didn't know before. And that's gonna lead you to make judgment calls. So then that rolls now to the top. The person who is the chief product officer, what is that person, The what are the skills that that person most needs to be successful in building you know, product-led companies going forward. Yes. So that's like fresh of the press research from that network. We've interviewed the, the top 1% most senior of the network. So several hundreds of chief product officers to understand like their leadership style, what makes them successful, what kind of organization design also makes them successful. And we learned uh, three, three key success factors. One is depending on the industry you're with, it's either about growth or it's about alignment. So if you're in a kind of a digital native industry, your success as a chief product officer is your ability to drive growth. But if you're in a more mature organization, your success is about aligning other functions. Mm. That's like number one. Number two, it's about a combination of hard metrics and soft skills. So the hard metrics, they are the KPIs. I was telling you about that you know, product equation, like what's going to drive revenue and what are key, like hard K KPIs. But then the soft skills, it's all those competencies that are constantly evolving. So what we talk about is you want to hire people who have a growth mindset. I'm sure you, your listeners and you, you know the book, the, the Growth Mindset, it's all about saying like, I'm not succeeding or failing, I'm constantly learning. And that's really what matters. So that's the that second combination. And then the third combination is looking at their org charts 
even I was surprised by what I learned there. I was expecting that they would be peers to the engineering organization, that they would constantly struggle to align and influence and try to secure budgets from other divisions. Not at all. Mm. More than half of the companies we surveyed, product was overseeing engineering, UX, analytics, of course, product, and then sometimes marketing. And then when you look at the success rate of the product organization, the larger the organization, the greater the success, because obviously they are more integrated. And so that's when you know, we, we were, I was completely blown away by this, saying, okay, now we are not, not, not just in the age of product, we're in the age of the chief product officer. They're going to be you know, the next kind of key person in the C-suite. Just, you know, we, we were doing a parallel with marketing earlier, just the same way the chief marketing officer became a very prominent member of the C-suite 10 years ago. If you, if you remember, when they just came into the C-suite, people were saying like, what's a chief marketing officer doing, right? They're doing yeah. TV ads or something like that. And now people are saying the same about the chief product officer, like they're pushing websites out. But today, chief marketing officers, they have bigger budget than chief information officers. They have you know, huge responsibility. We think in five years, chief product officers will have the same kind of responsibilities. For our listeners who maybe weren't around, like I'm going to, I'll go ahead and age myself. I was coming out of college fresh off the 2000 tech boom when companies like Google had just gone public, you know, Yahoo was already public. And there was really like the big titans of emerging technology companies. You could hear them, you could see them coming. Salesforce had just start, get started. What Essie's talking about is like, these companies did not have CMOs. It was not considered something like, oh, we don't need to sell it. Like the engineering is so good, customers will use it. Like that was kind of the mindset, right? And so CMOs at tech companies or software, especially software led tech companies, they just didn't really have a big time seat at the table. That, of course, has now changed. We understand very much so that acquiring customers is a very aggressive game in software. If you take a look at the cash flow statements of any publicly traded software company, you'll see they spend a lot acquiring customers, right? Then what SC, you know, I love to hit on what you're saying now. It's like the emergence of the chief product officer, because going back to what we were talking about earlier, when I was developing software back in 2010, the product person reported to the CTO, like the C or our CTO was in our organization. The CTO was like the head of engineering, made all the calls of infrastructure as well as UI UX. The product person's kind of like wanted features, but like the CTO definitely determined which features got built. It sounds like that is turning around that the business needs. The product officer is now going to determine the features. And it's like the engineers are going to have to figure out like, how do we make those things come true? Or there's just more alignment. There's not as much, you know, the way I described it, there was more engineering pushback. It sounds like this is the product officers now have enough information where they're like saying, hey, this is what's going to drive those revenue goals. Like you talked about, we have to figure out a solution to this. That's exactly right. And <laughs> I'm ancient, just like you are. <laughs> so to me, that's like mind blowing that, you know, IT would not be as powerful as, you know, before, but this is really the trend that we're seeing with, uh, with our network. And, you know, what I anticipate, if I try to think a little bit about like, what does, you know, crystal ball, what, what's the future? I can see that there's a lot of verticalization in the product management discipline. So that's a sign that, you know, the industry is really maturing a little bit, but also there are some trends that I think will continue to reinforce the influence of the chief product officer. For example, 
this idea of product-led growth. Yeah. The idea that, hey, you don't, you don't necessarily need a sales force to sell, especially in the mid-market. You have a product that is engineered to sell itself online without the help of a sales force or with minimal influence of a sales force. Uh, so that's one trend to drive yeah, product-led growth is product drives revenue instead of sales drives revenue. Then the second big trend we see is low-code and no-code, mm -hmm. uh, and that drives cost reduction. And it's also super important because it's so hard to find engineers right now that product people who want to deliver on their roadmap, they are saying like, okay, I need more engineers than I, can, than I have at my disposal. So why don't I buy this product off the shelf that basically replaces a portion of my engineering team that's not working on mission-critical stuff I'm going to put a tool in place, right, cloud-based, uh, and then my engineers can focus on what's really hard to do, what's really mission critical, and I'm sort of making do with a low-code, no-code tool. So that's a huge cost saver and, and also a time saver in terms of uh, time to market, go to market for, for these organizations. You know, in the way you describe that, I'm, I'm starting to think and wonder, like, and I'd love to hear your perspective. Over the last few years, I bet my guess is, and you tell us, that certain product officers, when they were given the right, let's say, authority to make the adjustments as fast as they needed, they were probably able to show revenue differences right out the gate, right? Like whether it's conversion rates, you mentioned before, right? It's just the, it's, it's all funnels, right? So how many people came to the site? Marketing put the people on the site. Okay. Well, how much did the product pull through to paid subscriptions? I'm guessing that there was a period of time when, you know, that was kind of unclear. Then it became more clear where if I was the product officer, I'd be like, hey, my call, our judgment right now just generated X dollars, right? And then that gave more influence into the speed, meaning like, okay, you seem to figure out this methodology. So now we need the toolkits, like you're describing low code. Like first it was like DevOps was the first thing that I remember emerged like four or five years ago. You heard a lot about people like, hey, we got to get better DevOps. And that allowed product people to build faster, right? Now- it's another layer, it sounds like, to even go even faster, which is, okay, DevOps is my infrastructure. Low code is going to be my front end. I need to build something on the front end. So now DevOps has allowed my infrastructure to scale. Now I need low code to make my UI UX functionality scale. And this is all because the product officers are driving revenue. Is that, is that what's basically happening in these different wheels? That's exactly what's happening. You totally nailed it. And what you're describing, like, the way it changes things in like a competitive landscape is if you're a corporation and you don't do that kind of stuff, you're going to be out of business in the next like five to 10 years, right? So McKinsey actually did a study on this. It says companies that involve product in their decisions are like two and a half more likely to be market leaders than, than everybody else. Mm. And then if you're an employee at one of these companies, and you want to be in product, that's why I was emphasizing the importance of tools. Like we have people in this network who are constantly searching for new tools and searching to implement tools that are going to make them more competitive because they're going to build products faster. They're going to put them out to the market faster so that they make their companies more successful. So you know, two, three years ago, Product management was very much this art, like, oh, don't try to sell me something. I'm sure Todd might have said, you know, shared a, a few things about the early days. Uh, and now we're hearing product managers say, like, what are the tools that are going to make me great at my job? <laughs> yeah. And, and then I guess that piggies back right into what you said earlier, which is there is no such thing as product market fit, because if you have it, it's very temporary. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> so what you know the based on what you've learned and you know you've surveyed so many and so many companies uh just to name some of the companies that are uh identified alone on your um your your website you know companies like coinbase companies like box you know so it's a big enterprise as well as consumer application product officers they're all here at products that count what do you see your members pushing towards because they want to move faster they kind of have the, they know that they have more tools than ever to measure accurately and they're they're investing there what do you see from them as what they think good products are today is it is it all about speed is it all about simplicity is it what are the some like the major levers because i for a while it was all simplicity but we know that like for example in enterprise it's really hard to be simple like it's just hard like <laughs> enterprise tools have to do so much stuff it's it's pretty hard to be simple Give us an idea of where, I guess, consumer demand is asking the most for. Yes, I, that's such a broad question. And to be honest with you, it's so broad now um, that I don't think a single person has the answer. It's, that's why you know, we're seeing really this verticalization where right now there's a huge trend to building products in fintech, life sciences, generally in regulated industry. There are some mm. challenges there some lesson learned because things cannot move as fast as they move in, you know, the digital native. And so there's a huge emphasis in learning, like what are some of the key trends around like regulated industries? That's one. The second thing that we see a lot in, um, you know, kind of at the forefront of technology is how do I, you know, adopt a blockchain technology? How do I adopt um, even in, you know, some, um, like basically web three kind of digitalization. But that to me is still way more at the experimentation level than at the mainstream level. So it depends on, you know, what kind of uh, company you work for. You either are going to face like a digital transformation type situation. I have a lot of like older IT system, a lot of regulations I need to cope with. How do I innovate at speed? And, and that's one set of key trends and tools and, and effort. And then the other one is like, I'm at the forefront, like show me the next, you know, Web3, show me um, even with uh, some genomic stuff, health AI, things like that. Yeah. Now, this has been pretty fascinating hearing from you. Now, I got to ask this. So we got to also learn about you as a person. What about for yourself? What makes a good product to you personally? Like where, what, what is true of the products that you like to use? I'd love to hear your perspective on it to understand where you're coming from. Yes, yes. So I'm like of the mind that it's all about people. <laughs> it's not <laughs> about technology for the sake of technology. And that's really like what I talk a lot about in my book. It's like technology is only here to make our lives better. I'm, I'm very much a techno optimist. And so I think of, you know, I go back to that, you know, mind, body, spirit world, like body world. I want products that are super easy to use. I, on, on my phone, right? Like all, so much of products is just mobile now. Um, I have apps on just one screen and I'm like, if I don't use you every day, um, app X, Y, Z, like you're going to screen number two, I'm never going to use you ever again. Right. So it's like that simple. Like what are the core essential things that I really need? That's the, 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 you know, on the beauty rule, like everything has to be beautiful, simple, elegant. Then on the, the mind rule, meaningful, I think that's one huge opportunity for, for people who are looking to, you know, to build products right now, which is how do I personalize a service 
with really like how do I make the experience that you know, SC has with the, with my product completely unique? You know, Facebook's not super popular these days, but uh, Facebook was a complete pioneer at that. Like my newsfeed mm-hmm. is completely different from your newsfeed, from any anyone else's newsfeed. So it's a very unique product because it's so personalized. But then at the same time, you know, we know the backlash, which is privacy. So handling privacy risks, I think it's really important. And we can talk about that if uh, if there's some time. And then the, the mind rule, like keeping learning and keeping evolving and growing. I think we... You know, with tools like Amplitude and, and Pendo, we, we got that. Like, it's all this idea of growth hacking, this idea of, like, uh, instrumentation. And, and we're, we're pretty good at measuring, but it's easy when you measure it to get into sort of, I call it funnel vision. It's not quite yeah. tunnel. It's like funnel vision where we just try to optimize funnel conversion and we, we lose a little bit the big, the big picture, which is, you know, personalization and, and simplicity. So then I got to ask this, right? With all the tooling that's available and all the information and the people and personnel, how much of product will remain in art? Because I use, I like to go back to like movies as a good example, right? Is because storytelling, well, storytelling has been around for thousands of years, but that doesn't mean you will tell a good story or writing a book, great book, right? It still takes a person with a vision that is it, you can't describe it. You can't just tell someone, write me a good story. You know what I mean? Like someone's going to figure one out and it's going to grab a hold of the consumer interest and that book or that movie becomes extremely popular. Products, I'm assuming, have a similar, there's got to be this window, right? Where it's like some of it's science and then some of it's like an indescribable art where some people are just going to be better at using information to make a better product. How much is left in that art? I'm assuming there's still quite a bit because- but I hope so, because that shows like human creativity. I, I don't see a place where the machines will always tell us what to build. How much is left is just in that art. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yes, yes, yes. So we talked about funnel. I think I think of it as you have to think sometimes inside the funnel. Sometimes you have to think outside the funnel. So in order to build anything these days, you need to be in the science, right? You need to have a funnel, you have to implement it, you have to measure, you have to optimize the conversion. Otherwise, you, you don't even play, right? Yeah. In in product. So that's that's you know, that's how you get that funnel vision. And so the question is like, how do I then think outside the funnel? How do I almost pretend there is no no funnel? So I'll give you a couple of examples. You have to think like, hey. What's, what's, if there is no funnel, like what's a perfect funnel theoretically, right? And so for, for those of you who are like in the engineering or math realm, a perfect funnel is, is infinitely wide and, and infinitely flat, right? So my, my users, instead of like trickling in and like waiting for a ton of time to convert, like everybody in the planet <laughs> comes in and loves my product right away. That's yeah. like, yes. So it's like a horizon line. Okay, so how do I make my funnel infinitely wide? And so you have to think of uh, what I call hooks. And hooks are a way to say like, you know, what if everybody could use my product instantaneously? So I'll give you an example. You, you know the service Zillow, the real estate marketplace, right? Yeah, so real estate, yep, Zillow. If, um, if you own a house, you probably know of Zillow. But even if you don't, you probably know of Zillow as well because it's very likely that even if you cannot afford a house, you've looked up how much your house is worth. Or maybe not your house, but 
your ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend's house. A dream house, yeah. Or your, your dream house or your boss's house, you know. And maybe you start doing it one day or maybe every day and you're trying to see trends. You're like, oh, there's a market opportunity. Oh, the market's going down, da, da, da. And, and so everybody knows Zillow, even though very few people are, are able to afford buying a house. So that's an example of a hook that Zestimate, that's your know, slightly inflated valuation of a house. <laughs> that's a hook. Like it hooks everybody. Yeah. And then another example of you know, creating you know amazing products and and having that disruption and that that art piece is when you think like how do I make my funnel completely flat? So a great example of that is if you go on Amazon and you try to buy my book and you see immediately after like here are five other books, right? If you're like me, you buy five books. Nobody reads books anymore, but you know you just bought five books because it's like just two clicks, right? You don't need to redo a big search. You don't need to like go through the funnel all over again. Here, it's like a complete shortcut to buying more products. So these are all very creative ways that you can you know build these products that are highly addictive, highly engaging, and and really fantastic. Yeah. So the art's always going to be here. That's what I figured, right? Like you can't analyze your way to success. At some point, someone you're gonna have to make a gut instinct call and say, "Hey, we're gonna. This is what we're gonna build, and we're gonna try to. And we're gonna try to do this." By the way, <laughs> you know, these folks they did it for real estate and buying books, which are not the most sexy or trendy industries, right? So you can do yeah. it in any industry for any product. Well, as someone who's going through, um, like you said, heavily regulated heavily regulated industries, um, something that helps people for, like take, like it's, there's about to be a massive transfer of wealth. As everyone knows, the baby boomer generation is getting older. There's a lot of paperwork in the, in the future for anyone who has taken care of their parents. I can, I can tell you that I have the amount of paperwork that's in front of you is unbelievable. And there seems to be no apparent automations and systems here. So back to one of the things you said there, like this this is an industry ripe for a great product because you would have, it would be sticky and most people would just like Intuit took over taxes, right? Like most of us, if there was an easier way, we would say yes to it. Like, and it's a, it's a painful process. So, you know, it's been awesome having you on the show, Essie, you know, thanks for sharing some of the things you've learned about your community and thanks for sharing what you see for the product officer of the future. It sounds like they're going to have a huge seat at the C-suite, not just a seat. Possibly the seat. I don't know. It the sounds biggest like it's, seat. It might be the biggest seat. Exactly. <laughs> the biggest seat at the, at the head of the table. <laughs> yes. You know, we, it was awesome hearing your perspective. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. SC, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So we did a little homework on you. So not only are you a product person, are you a musician? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. I sing in a rock band. It's a cover band. <laughs> what songs do you like to cover? So I love, for example, Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. I love um, uh, David Bowie, Red Hot Chili Peppers, that kind of stuff. Tina Turner. Oh, that's a good range. So when you sing... What kind of range would you describe that you have? Are you like Tina Turner? Are you like Freddie Mercury? Can you hit all the notes? I, I can hit a lot of notes. Yes, <laughs> I can go high and low. 
<laughs> it sounds like you have a lot of creativity in your blood. You know, you like product, you like music. What are some of the other things you like to create? You know, I, I'm right now building my businesses. That's incredibly creative. So that's where most of my energy and creative energy goes. But before I, I was building this business, I love singing. I love sculpting. Um, I dance tango for some time. So yeah, I, I, I have that creative streak for sure. There you go. What place in the world would you say feels most like home? Big cities. So um, I love New York. I love Paris where I grew up. I love San Francisco where I live. Big cities mostly. There you go. What advice, if any, would you give to your younger self? I would say you are ready. <laughs> Why do you say that? Did, you, did it take a little bit before you wanted to jump off on your own? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that, you know, there's always that period of time where you're like, you feel like things can, like you have plenty of time to do things. And then there's a time where all of a sudden you're like, oh no, wait a minute, like it's happening right now. So like, and, and uh, so that's one, one aspect of it. And then the other one is um, when I was uh, younger, maybe I didn't have as much confidence as I have now. So like this idea of like, no, no, you're ready, just go for it. There you go. I'm. You know what? I subscribe to that same philosophy because I've. Uh, <laughs> there's no better time than now, right? <laughs> what else are you going to be waiting for or learning that you know you're not going to learn along the way, anyways? There you go. Well, let's see. It was awesome having you on the show. As you know, IT visionaries tends to cater towards the tech teams, and I think that a lot of people are certainly part of product teams on this show. And just hearing the the change and how it's going to be so dri like that aspect and function is going to drive the whole company. Um, and it was pretty cool to hear directly from the mouths and the words of the people who are actually doing it. Product-led companies, you said, the more aligned they are, the more successful they seem to be. And I think that will hold true for, I don't know how many more years, but it'll hold true for a while until something else comes up. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for having me. That was so much fun.